up on Harvard Chan this week in health, the psychology behind charitable giving. The Marm effect is this phenomenon that people have this preference to raise money, at least for certain types of causes, in this kind of painful, effortful way. The mistakes we often make when considering where to donate our money. Plus, everybody wants to flock to the disaster, and every you know, physician with a good heart or a nurse with good intentions or anybody sees suffering and wants to intervene. A closer look inside aid organizations, why it's usually more effective to donate your money instead of your time. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. As we record this episode, we're right in the middle of the holiday season, and this is obviously a major time for charitable giving. So we wanted to delve into that topic with a public health focus, and we're going to come at this from two angles. First, the mistakes we make when giving to charity. What do we consider when we donate, and what should we be considering? And then we'll look at things from the perspective of non-governmental organizations and aid agencies that are often recipients of philanthropy. We'll examine how they operate, how they use money, and how we can decide where to donate. So let's begin with the psychology behind our philanthropic decisions. My name is Christopher Olivola and I am an assistant professor of marketing at the Tepper School of Business of Carnegie Mellon University. Olivola has conducted research into our giving habits, and what he's found is that we're often thinking about charity the wrong way. In a recent Wall Street Journal article, Olivola, along with Shlomo Benzardi, a professor at UCLA, outlined three common mistakes when giving to charity. Number one, the martyrdom effect. The martyrdom effect is this phenomenon that people have this preference to raise money, at least for certain types of causes, in this kind of painful, effortful way. Olivola was inspired to study this after the success of the Ice Bucket Challenge. That was the viral fundraising campaign where people dumped ice-cold water on themselves and then challenged their friends to do the same, all to raise money for ALS. And that's not the only example. Plenty of people run marathons or bike long distances, even walk across hot coals, all to raise money for charity. And Olivola has found himself asking why we're drawn to these kinds of fundraising events. And more importantly, is this the most effective way of raising money? Do we really need to suffer for our charity? One version of rationality, you'd think, like, look, if you want to get people to do something, you should make it as easy and painless as possible, maybe even pleasurable, right? People often don't have, like, uh, you know, massage-a-thons or, or dessert-a-thons to raise money for, for, for disease. And, 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 you know, even as I say, you know, you're, it makes you laugh, and it makes me laugh, too. But, but if we stop and think about it, if there's no reason why it's funny as long as... We're raising money for the cause, and, and the, the people who need the money are getting it. That, that's what's important, right? Rationally, if, if I make something harder and more painful, people should be less willing to do it. If anything, they should donate less to kind of offset the, the pain. You know what I mean? Like, you have to pay me to, to run a marathon rather than I'm paying to do it. Um, but, of course, that's not what happens, right? Olivola says we often fail to consider the opportunity cost of, say, running a marathon for charity. It involves time for training, money for new equipment, shoes, shorts, things like that all of which could often be better spent contributing directly to a charity. So why is the martyrdom effect so prevalent? Well, it's all about perception. Running that marathon makes you look more committed to a charitable cause, even if it's not the most effective way to give. And our friends and family think this way as well. For example, take two people who want to help a soup kitchen. One donates some money, but also volunteers time. The other donates more money, but doesn't volunteer, although that money helps feed twice as many people. According to an online poll Olivola ran, 81% of people think that the person who donated their time lives a more admirable life, even if they actually helped fewer people. The point Olivola says is not to diminish the effect of volunteering, 
but to think critically about the best way that we can each contribute to a cause. And this martyrdom effect can manifest itself in other ways. Take another example. A young doctor opens up a private practice and makes $700,000 a year, eventually donating $50,000 every year to Doctors Without Borders. Those donations save 500 lives a year and help treat hundreds more. Now take another doctor, same age, but they join Doctors Without Borders making $23,000 a year. They work directly on the ground, saving 200 lives a year, treating hundreds more. The one donating the money is saving more lives, but 92% of people polled by Olive Olo say that the doctor working overseas is leading a more admirable life. And 60% say that physician's doing more to improve the welfare of others. And again, Olive Olo isn't saying that people shouldn't work for an NGO like Doctors Without Borders. Rather, he's saying we need to consider the best way to give. So for some people, that may mean using their extensive medical training to earn a high salary and then donate it. And it's, it's a context where we have such a strong uh, desire, intuition to, to kind of admire their sacrifice. Uh, but we have to stop and think that, you know, if the goal is to help as many people as, as possible, which is, I think, uh, sort of the central mission of Dr. La Borders, uh, is this really the most effective way? But what about the perspective of the aid agencies themselves? Don't they need more doctors on the ground? Not exactly, says one expert we talked with. Uh, Michael Van Royen. I'm the director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative and the chairman of emergency medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Van Royen has extensive experience in disaster medicine. And he says that sometimes an influx of doctors can do more harm than good, especially after a natural disaster. Everybody wants to flock to the disaster and every you know, physician with a good heart or a nurse with good intentions or anybody sees suffering and wants to intervene. The problem, says Van Royen, is that these doctors are often not trained specifically in disaster medicine. The fact is that they're not qualified to intervene, and they don't know what they're doing, and they don't know the local customs, and they don't know how to adapt their practice locally, and they don't have the material or resources to do so. So something like Haiti happens, for example, where you have you know a flood of thousands of new non-government organizations, little bitty ones that are, that are supplying services that are utterly uncoordinated, is actually problematic, I would say damaging in many cases. I, I think that if we believe that it's complicated and, and aid and um, humanitarian activity and humanitarian medicine is complicated, um, then we also should believe that professionalism matters. And therefore, people who are professionals and invested in their lives and careers in that should be the people in the field, as opposed to just people showing up. And therefore, the other people who are not professionals in this field probably should fund that effort, as opposed to going there. This problem is most apparent after natural disasters, says Van Royen, because it's easier for people to respond to these kinds of short-term crises. On the flip side, fewer Western doctors are traveling to places like Aleppo, Syria, where there's a sustained violent crisis. And when help is needed, Van Royen says that more doctors often won't make a difference, especially if they're only coming for a week or a month. Instead, improvements to infrastructure are needed, which is where financial contributions can be effective. There's um, a colleague of mine years ago um, was the head of the Pan American Health Organization, Claude DeVille, and he wrote about um, disaster myths. And those disaster myths he's written about for 25 years or more, and and they still hold. And one of those disaster myths that we hold is just send in the doctors, right? Send them in, let them go, let them go, and uh, and they'll sort of solve the problem. The fact is, it's rarely the problem, right? Most of the time, actually, the on-ground medical assets are actually sufficient. They just don't have the right material. So it turns out that 
you know, there are excellent physicians in the Philippines, for example, or excellent medical assets in the Philippines. We don't need a lot of doctors in a, in a typhoon there. We need their clinics to need, be rebuilt. We need their materials to come and the pharmaceuticals to arrive and the, the way to get people back into the health system. Um, so this whole idea of sending in, you know, an army of untrained, unprepared doctors and nurses to save the day is, um, you know, it's not only antiquated, it's completely false. Van Royen says that large NGOs like Doctors Without Borders or the International Rescue Committee are funded in various ways. Sometimes they receive funding from governments, for example, the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. In other cases, they're funded by individual donors. Sometimes these NGOs will directly spend the money themselves, but in other cases, they'll funnel the money to smaller organizations in a country who can make a greater impact in the field. And so that's our way of segueing into the next common mistake people make when considering a charitable donation. Okay, here's another scenario. You can choose to get $15, or you can have UNICEF receive $35. So it seems like a simple trade-off. Either you get the money and UNICEF gets nothing, or you help UNICEF and you get nothing. But it's not that simple, says Christopher Olivola. As humans, we're really good at considering the effect of our actions on ourselves, but not so much on other people. If my mind is kind of wandering between these options, you know, spend it on myself, donating to charity. When I'm thinking about donating to charity, it's very clear to me. We're, we're very good at realizing, well, that's money I'm not getting, right? And, and so it's naturally salient to people that every time they're, they're giving away money, that they're, that's money that they're not getting. Just like there's plenty of research showing people are very sensitive to uh, unfairness in general, especially when they're the, the victims of unfairness, right? So we have a very strong, natural, I would say even chronic awareness of losing out our, ourselves. However, we don't have the same amount of awareness. We don't have sort of, we're not as mentally talented, if you will, at thinking about the consequences to other people when we get money or when we're not giving that money away. So Olivola has actually run experiments to see how generosity will be affected when people are reminded about the consequences of their decisions. It's a phenomenon called the other-nothing effect. For some participants, we add one kind of reminder, which is the, you know, if you decide to be generous, that means you're going to get nothing, uh, and that has no impact. However, if you do the flip reminder, which is reminding them that if they decide to keep the money, then the other person's getting nothing, that raises generosity. So we've covered some of the common mistakes people make when giving to charity, but when you actually want to donate money, what should you consider? Van Royen says donors looking to help NGOs should take an analytical approach and view their gift as an investment, similar to a stock or a mutual fund. It shouldn't be necessarily about you, right? You feel good about giving, but the fact is that it should be about the end product. What do you want to accomplish? And think about what you want to accomplish. Some people um, give to an organization because they feel an affiliation with them, and that's fine. And some people want an outcome. You know, investing in organizations that are reputable, that are professional, that are um, optimize their care so that they use dollars the best way they can, even though some they'll always have to have administration, um, are actually good bets for return on investment um, because they actually do really good work. I mean, I'm a believer in the NGO model. I think there are actually really good NGOs out there. I would also say that there are terrible NGOs out there, that all they do is build their own image and they don't actually do any work. And the consumer or the, the investor needs to determine that, just like there's bad stocks. You know, there's stocks that you are going to throw your money away immediately um, and that you should never invest in. And then there are actually excellent stocks that have 
you know, proven to be high performing for years and years. For Olivola, he urges everyone to think of their motivation before donating or volunteering. He suggests thinking of what you're hoping to accomplish and assessing if the actions you're taking are the best way to achieve that goal. Think about what, what are your goals in this, right? Because obviously if your goals are to have the biggest impact possible on, on helping the needy, that might lead to a different choice than if your goal is to kind of look like a good person separately from, from the kind of impact, right? So if your goal is to have the biggest impact, then I would you know, urge people to think carefully about whether they're spending you know, the, 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 their money, their time in the most efficient way possible. And we did want to finish on a positive note on the joy of giving. And so the final mistake Olivola says we make is not understanding the joy of giving. He says there's evidence that it actually is better to give than receive. In an online survey, people were asked how happy they would be if they spent a $100 windfall on themselves. And the average happiness level was 3.89 on a five-point scale, where five is the happiest. A second group was asked how happy they would be if they spent that money on someone else. And the average happiness level there was 4.32. The takeaway, says Olivola, being generous with our money can improve the world, but it can also make us happier. And that's all for this episode of Harvard Chan This Week in Health. We'll be taking a few weeks off for the holidays but we'll be back in 2017 with all new episodes. In the meantime, check out any of our past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Happy holidays and happy new year.